0: Before we start this podcast, I have a small favor to ask you. If you have ever enjoyed one of these episodes, please hit the follow button if you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button down below. It helps more than you can imagine build my dream of getting this show onto the top charts and changing entrepreneurs' lives. Thank you very much, and enjoy this episode with Ritwick Pavan. All aboard the Mbit Podcast with Seamus Madan. Ritwick, thanks for taking the time to join the Mbit Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on today. For any person, I believe early context is essential to help understand who they are and the person they are today. How did your childhood influence yourself to where you are now?
1: Yeah, Shamus, thanks for having me on. I'd say that my childhood was a bit unique. I was in India for the first three years of my life. My dad was in the U.S. while my mom was finishing up with school. So me, my mom and my sister were there for the first three years, came to the U.S. for the first time, went back for a little little bit thinking that's where we were going to settle down. And then parents decided to settle down here so that my sister and I can have a an education and a foundation here in the U.S. where they felt it was better. So moved here to the U.S. when I was five. And at that point, I'd already done what you would say the the equivalent of kindergarten in India. Coming here, English wasn't my first language. So did ESL for about three years up until third grade. Didn't really know English all that well in class. My teacher found out in kindergarten when I wasn't talking in class and was like, you know, what's up with this kid? Um, And so, yeah, ended up Uh, taking ESL learning English had a very heavy Indian accent actually when I was first here and now most people can't tell but um, yeah so you know went through all of that was in a primarily you know I'd say there was like two Indians in my class and probably like you know you could count on your hands how many in the school and then following that just went to magnet middle school magnet high school which is kind of in the downtown area of Raleigh grew up in Cary most of my life in North Carolina so the suburbs Um, and uh, yeah, had two parents that were, you know, in the software engineering side of the world. So it was always grew up around tech.
0: Being unique can sometimes persuade or dissuade somebody in their journey. You mentioned that you were one of very few Indians at your school. Did that have any effect on motivating you or the opposite? How did that affect you?
1: Yeah. I mean, culturally, I think as a, at a young age, you always want to fit in as a kid. And having immigrant parents, I can tell you that there was a lot of challenges of its own that they were facing and also that we as kids were facing. And I think those challenges help shape who you are as you grow up, letting you know that it's okay to be unique and Having your differences, whether it's the food you eat, the way you dress, the way you sound, the way you look, all that. So, I mean, growing up wasn't the easiest, even elementary school, whether it was getting bullied or harassed and the food you're eating, all that. And once I went to middle school, there were a lot more people that I would say were like-minded, ambitious, hardworking. And not to say they weren't in my elementary school, but a lot more people that were similar to me. And I think that by that point, I had gained this early confidence that it's okay to be different and, and be able to pursue my passion. So by the time I was in high school, I knew that outside of school, I had a lot of interests that I wanted to pursue. And that's kind of what led me into uh, creating apps in my first company while I was in high school. Yeah, I wanna delve into one of the apps you first created, which was a
0: app called Flappy Eat when you were 16. It went viral on the app store, reached top three in the top charts. Why did you create the app and why do you think it went viral?
1: I created the app because I was pretty bored during spring break. I think this was my sophomore year of high school and um, I was like 14 or 15, I think. And I was helping a nonprofit religious organization that I was a part of with building apps. Eventually I was like, hey, I want to create my own developer account through Apple, pay the 100 bucks. So I asked my parents if I could and they gave me an account and they didn't. My parents didn't want me working anywhere while I was in high school. They wanted to be focusing on school but they did support my idea of like creating this app and and they were okay with it. And they saw that it was something I was passionate about. So I created the game and frankly was not expecting it to blow up. I mean, it was just a a stupid game, like a a flappy bird rendition and a a little bird with a guy on it going through obstacles. And it it was honestly just hilarious. And later in the week, it was just like trending on Twitter and was going viral in the app store. And it like, I believe top 20 in the app store, top three in games. And over a long period of time, Time, like over a quarter million downloads. So yeah, that was kind of an early dose of just perfect place, perfect time. I think that was like a, it was a funny time to be putting this game out there and it, it was somewhat addicting, but also just funny. And yeah, it, it went viral, but that would, yeah, that was, was not the expectation. I would say the biggest takeaway I had is, you know, there if there is the current thing that's going on and you're able to act on it and monetize off of it, I mean, there's no reason not to. And, and I had very little to lose when I was like 14 or 15 years old. I said, okay, let me just create this game. And it, it did unexpected numbers, but I wouldn't say there was any formula for that specific kind of overnight success, I, you could say. Speaking of uh,
0: viral things, not too long after you founded Linker Logic Technologies, which is a software development company when you were still in high school. What was the
1: company and how did you build it? So after building the game, Frankly, I watched a lot of tutorials to build a game and it wasn't like I was a master coder. But I had a lot of people reaching out to me saying, you know, hey, can you build an app that does this or does that? And so this was back in 2014, 2015, when apps were still starting to become, you know, it wasn't as saturated as as it is today. And so when a bunch of people were asking me about it, I said, why don't I create an agency out of this and essentially help with software design and development? Back then, we were heavily focused on web apps and web web pages just to start off completely bootstrapped, and then I ended up hiring a student out of my high school who was known as, like, a prodigy developer, and he knew, like, twelve different programming languages back then and was very intelligent. We were able to capitalize on the early customers that we got. We essentially did it for nothing. Like we we honestly took a loss probably on most of the early projects just so that we could build a portfolio up. And then once that was done, we did have some serious customers coming in. And it was pretty exciting, I think two years after we had one of our local news organizations reach out saying, Hey, can we build an Apple Watch application? And we actually didn't know how to do it then, but we said, we'll learn, we'll figure it out. We just honestly wanted access to the Apple Watch before like it went out to the public. And we ended up building the first ever local news Apple Watch application. So it kind of just grew over time and I, I continued to lead that through college. We were able to essentially turn it into a full stack software design and development agency, completely bootstrapped. And at our peak, we had about 40 people on the team and was running that out of college, was able to help pay for my college tuition through that and, and you know get my first car, all that good stuff. So definitely enjoyed the time in the agency business, but realized over time that I don't wanna be helping other people solve their problems through an agency business. I'd rather go solve problems that I see in the world.
0: What was, you mentioned you hired somebody out of your high school um, who's a master coder. How did some of the other students at your high school think about you starting another company?
1: I mean I think uh, there was a fair share of I I guess you could say in hindsight probably jealousy to an extent and there was people that behind closed doors weren't supporting it and I remember hearing like a a few parents after we had gotten some early press telling their kids to be more like this or that and comparison is a thief of joy. Afterwards
0: you didn't want to be an agency anymore. But you wanted to solve problems for
1: people. What was next? I ended up passing the you know fair share of equity to a team member on my team who had dropped out and okay. essentially worked us full time, and uh, he led the operations. What I quickly learned was that you can't really, especially at the early stages of a startup, be full time face of a company and a startup, especially not after you raise some money. And and truthfully, it's nearly impossible to do. And so. With an agency business, oftentimes as a founder, you are the face of the business, you're the one responsible for going and getting sales, and oftentimes it comes through referrals. As soon as you fall off of that, it's very hard to essentially get business at the same level as you did, which was something I quickly learned. So as I transitioned to Vade, my startup that was focused on a GovTech hardware solution, I eventually just stepped off of Linker Logic and put my full attention to this problem that we were solving at Vade that revolved around parking and traffic congestion. So after Vade, you ended up building this company called
0: Crava, which is revolutionizing the construction industry with modular, prefabricated and sustainable homes. You have a pinned tweet that starts with, I am obsessed with construction. How did you become obsessed with construction?
1: Yeah, I mean, seeing it all around me, truthfully, there's a there's a few things that led to this. I've, I've been reading on construction for a while, but more importantly, I've been reading on our housing crisis. And when I was looking into it, it's unreal. One thing that really stood out to me was the housing shortage. There's over 5 million homes that we're in shortage of right now. There's a few variables that contribute to this. It's the speed at which construction it's being done. Right now, it's done almost the same way as it was done 100 years ago. And then on top of that, you've got a shortage of labor, you've got supply chain issues, material costs are going up. So all of this led me to the conception of where we are focused on accelerating the speed at which it's done. We want to streamline the entire home building process so that ultimately, we can not only increase the supply of homes, but we can also help homeowners turn their backyards into revenue generating assets. So we believe that right now with the housing crisis, it's not that more homes couldn't be built. It's that the specific locations where these homes are built, there's a shortage. So when you look at the urban cores in the bigger cities, that's where people want to essentially have their homes. and with the shortage of labor and all the earlier issues I mentioned, that's what's contributed to the lack of supply. So if we can help homeowners convert their backyards and turn their backyards into uh, revenue generating assets, and incentivize them to essentially add an additional home in their backyard, if they have the space for it, we're now essentially balancing out the system where there can be an increase in the supply, but also the homeowners are incentivized to add the home to generate passive income. And the best part about it is that cities are easing regulations to allow for what we call ADUs, accessory dwelling units, in the backyards of homes. So to go back to your original question about construction, I mean, it's more than just construction that excites me. I am obsessed with the way that construction is being done and, and believe that there's a lot more efficient ways to do it. I, I think it's going to take a lot of time, but it will be well worth the efforts when we look at it 10 years from now.
0: How can the homes or... Are- the sheds in this case be turned into revenue generating assets?
1: Sure. So we're starting off with what you could consider a shed. By definition, it's under uh, under 200 square feet and all we need is electrical. There's no plumbing, sewage, or utility, or well, outside of electrical. So we're starting off with that because essentially our core product at Crava is not building sheds or building homes. It's the system that we're using to build it, where we've used standardized modules, that we've built, whether it's for the windows, the doors, the power modules, the corner modules, every single aspect of it, what we have standardized so that we can essentially build whatever a homeowner wants. Ultimately, the idea is that we can build a 400, 500 square foot space in a backyard too, that features a bedroom, a bathroom, a living room, whatever a homeowner may want. And ultimately, a homeowner will be able to rent that out whether it's to a smaller family, whether it's to a couple, individual, whoever it may be, and be able to turn that into a revenue generating asset through the the rent money that they're able to generate. And how long does it take to,
0: to build the smaller sheds or the K1 in this case?
1: So we're still in the early days of our our company. And so we've just finished our first production build, which, you know, took us a few months, but the idea is that as we scale up, we are confident that it should be able to take us one to two weeks to finish a full build out in the factory of the units. And then in terms of assembly time, we're able to assemble the unit on site in someone's backyard within 12 hours.
0: Speaking of the modular construction industry, you've talked about how in the past they've consistently overpromised and under delivered. Why is this such a difficult space to get into?
1: It's a very difficult space to get into because of how regulated it is. It's there's, it's there's The barrier to entry is very high. The cost of material constantly fluctuates. So a lot of the companies that actually ended up going under were during COVID just because of the fact that even steel, any material, construction material, went up 200, 300% of the price that they had initially quoted to customers. And I've talked to a lot of these founders and startups that have gone under. And unfortunately, the case was a little bit out of their control, but also just setting expectations way too high. And with homeowners wanting the backyard homes, there is a, a quite a process to go through in most jurisdictions, you know, that involves permitting. The reason we're starting with the backyard sheds is so that in, in about over 95% of the U.S., we don't need a permit. You know, if it's classified as a shed and if the electrical is under 30 amps, we're able to essentially deliver it. And even though it's classified as a shed, I can tell you that the the insight and the experience of it is nothing like a shed. We are using whatever metrics or whatever methods we can to be able to scale effectively rather than getting into what I call the holy grail of construction, which is affordable home ultimately, if you can build, you know, an affordable home at scale, truly, and be able to deliver it to customers, I think you could be the world's first trillionaire. But in order to get there, I believe that you have to start small and then work your way up to, you know, a a single family home. And in the long term, you want to make these homes into
0: full fledged homes that could be built. How do you get around the regulations there? Is there regulation blocking you from being able to do that now?
1: so now is the perfect time to get into the adu space because the regulations are the hot topic when you look at every single municipality if you go to google news and you search adu regulations right now or ADU regulation city You'll see that a new city every single day is easing the regulations. So I'd say it's the perfect time, perfect place. Again, going back to our conversation earlier, cities are working to accelerate the speed at which um, you can get a permit. In California, they say that they can do it within 60 days. I've talked to several folks that say that it's not the case, but at least that's the goal. And several other states are starting to accommodate the same with permits so that Homeowners don't have to wait a year or two years to get individual permits for certain aspects of it, whether it's septic hookup, utilities, electrician. What we're aiming to do is once we have finalized our system, we wanna get factory certified. So what that means is that in every state you can have a certification where there it's probably around a one-year process roughly, where you get your electrical verified, you get your installation, your quality control, everything checked in a factory setting. Ultimately, once you are delivering on site, or once you are delivering to the homeowner, it's already vetted. So you can skip a bunch of the steps that have to be done typically to make sure for very valid reasons that home doesn't just light up on fire. You talked about
0: using the Krava homes or the K1 can be used to create revenue generating assets for homeowners. Have you thought about like creating a custom marketplace for Krava users that would allow them to rent out their spaces or or rent somebody else's space or what were your thoughts on that?
1: It's so funny that you ask that because that has exactly been one of our topics in the long term. We do want to build a marketplace where homeowners essentially that have a Krava uh, space or Krava system can rent out their units through our app, where we are then able to essentially give some sign off on, on the quality check, right? Like right now, when you book an Airbnb, every Airbnb is completely different. But if, if a homeowner were to get a, a Krava space, I mean, in the long term, we do plan to have an app connected with all the IoT. So smart lock, everything from the lighting, the AC, everything can be controlled. So the idea in the long term would be to allow for homeowners to rent out the Krava space through our marketplace. And long-term, 10 to 15 years from now,
0: where do you want to see Krava or this industry?
1: About 10, 15 years from now, I would like to see a much higher percentage of homes being manufactured because of the fact that, one, you've got consistent quality. You don't have to worry about the shortage of labor. Hopefully, there's automation and streamlined manufacturing by that point. There are estimates that I've seen by 2035, 70% of housing will be manufactured homes. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I would love to see that. And outside of that, where I see Crava is that we will be building uh, full single-family homes. We'll be building ADUs. We will be uh, leading the construction of residential homes, um, hopefully 10 years from now. Some people will say that building the homes as fast as you do might result in a loss of quality. What do you say to them? So the variable that doesn't matter, first of all, is the speed at which it's done. What matters more is the actual method in which the construction is done. So we do use uh, traditional construction methods. We use traditional construction material. The only difference is that by standardizing our modules, we're able to build it at a much faster rate. Down the road, we're gonna be using uh, machinery and equipment and CNC routers and all sorts of different tools to essentially automate the construction process, which actually results in better quality than what you typically see from general contractors. Right now, if somebody's looking to build a backyard home or an ADU or for the most part, any upgrade to their home, they call a general contractor up. The issue with that is there's a spectrum on the quality of the general contractor. They could be really amazing and fully booked all the time and really expensive, or they could suck and be really bad and not pay attention to detail. What you actually get the benefit of in manufactured construction is that it's consistent every time. Most of the time, whether it's 3D printers, whether it's CNC routers, whatever it may be, Uh, it's going to be much more precise and it's in a controlled environment. So every single time we're able to deliver the same quality build and it's actually more precise than humans. And so I would argue that manufactured construction is actually way better quality, uh, even though it is faster. And And I can see how that can sometimes say, okay, well, it's not taking nine months to build my home. So is it actually the best quality or is this a, a shitty shed? But no, the, the ultimate kind of secret sauce and variable comes into the fact that it's in a controlled environment and there's new processes and methods to which we're doing it. And before we close it up, there's a couple of questions I had before we wrap it up. One thing
0: I've learned about entrepreneurship, I know we talked about this a little bit before the show, but no matter how far you are along in the journey, there's always obstacles that you're facing. What's the biggest obstacle you're facing right now?
1: Man, the biggest obstacle we're facing right now has to be probably with our, just the challenges that we face in R&D with our build. I mean, what we're trying to build and the idea of being able to build Legos for living spaces sounds very exciting and cool. And But when it's in practice, it's very difficult, way beyond what I even thought. Our team is fantastic, but I've got to say that every single day, we've got a different hurdle with a build. Outside of this, I would say that we have a lot of excited cons- customers that we want to deliver to, but we want to make sure that we perfect our production. Production. So one of the biggest challenges is the idea that we see the light at the end of the tunnel, but getting to there can sometimes be you're crawling and you're walking before you kind of just run. And so I would say right now we're still in the steps of crawling. We can't wait to to walk and then be able to run. But that's how it goes when you're trying to, you know, go zero to one in a startup and then go one to a hundred. Especially when you're trying to build
0: actual hardware or physical products, that's a lot harder to do. But one question left: If you could go back and tell your 16-year-old entrepreneurial self, one thing, what would it be?
1: I would say that if I could go back to my 16-year-old self, I would say take any idea that you have and, and you know, don't be scared to risk it. Try it out. What, what do you have to lose? You know, you're 16 years old, you're in high school, hopefully, and I understand not everyone is, is in the situation, but if you are and you have the means to be able to go try something out and your parents are paying your bills or you're not paying rent most likely, what do you have to lose by going and pursuing an idea, I would say do everything you can be as scrappy as possible, talk to as many people as possible. I mean, when they say your network is your net worth, I, I think it's 100% true. And over time, you know, one thing I've learned is the relationships that you have, whether it be investors, whether it's other founders, it's it's the people that you surround yourself with, that can make the biggest impact on you, your business, it really comes down to relationships. But outside of that, I'd say stay hungry, if I could go back and tell myself and, and, you know, never let anyone say no if you have an idea that's ambitious enough i mean we've seen reusable rockets go to space and nobody ever thought that was possible so the world is your oyster awesome well thank you very much for for
0: taking the time to join the show it was a pleasure chatting with you today and we'll have a link in the episode description below to krava and krava homes if you want to check it out and take a look at their website well thank you very much greatly appreciate it thank you for having me